a wonderful day. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Rackspace AI and You podcast, where we talk about all things AI, including cool industry-leading solutions and where the future is headed as we as a species co-evolve with technology and the massive amounts of data um, that's being produced on a daily basis. My name is Miriam Molina. I have 10 years of experience designing, developing, and leading technology teams delivering the future in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data science. Today, we will be chatting about AI in the bionics industry with Limitless. We have with us Dominique Corbin, John Sparkman, and Peter Smith. I'm Dominique Corbin, a co-founder at Limitless Solutions. I've been with the company almost eight years now, and uh, my expertise is in manufacturing and prototyping. I'm Peter Smith. I lead game design at Limitless Solutions, and I'm a professor of game design at the University of Central Florida. Hi, I'm John Sparkman, Vice President and Director of R&D at Limitless Solutions. I graduated from the University of Central Florida. Uh, I help to develop and mentor students here at Limitless. Oh, wow. Um, I would love to learn a little bit more about what uh, Limitless does. Yeah, so Limitless Solutions, uh, 3D prints and and is transitioning to injection molding and, and really just manufactures uh, prosthetic arms for uh, people. And uh, our, our main focus is producing arms for children at no cost to their families. So we are a nonprofit that uh, is doing a lot of work on making prosthetic arms, particularly for kids and uh, yeah, um, for, for no cost. Oh, that's so amazing that you guys contribute to the community that way. Um, so tell me a little bit about how the process goes when you're building an arm. Yeah, so I, I would say that uh, that that process really starts with our web portal. And uh, John has done a ton of work on our web portal. So I'll, I'll hand that off to John and let John speak to that. Uh, yeah, so uh, first thing that happens is the... Uh, parents of the applicant will go online and fill out an application. Uh, we then take in that application and we look and see if we are even able to help the individual. Um, there are some aspects that we look at to make sure that they fit in the, uh, what Dominique likes to call the Goldilocks region. Um, from there, we have our hospital partners go on to a vendor page that we've created and they uh, then approve the rest of the way. And then after the application has been approved, we then send them that they've been approved and they will be able to receive a Bionic arm. So John, what do you mean by that Goldilocks region? Oh yeah, so uh, that region is where um, the child has a specific uh, size of their limb is missing or type of uh, their limb that we are actually able to help with. 
after they have been chosen, they get to go on this customization portal on our website and they actually get to see all the 3D uh, models that we have for our prosthetics. And they're able to go on there and pick a model and color it any way they want. We get all different types of colors. We've had just pure gold arm uh, from Arbiter, uh, which is a from Halo, which is a 3D, uh, I'm sorry, which is a game design company. Uh, they uh, create Halo, the game. Um, and we've had, uh, man, uh, some of the most funky looking colors ever. Uh, the kids get to choose and then they, um, that's the arm that they will be presented with when we, the hosp when they go to the hospital and we see them there. Mm -hmm. And what about in designing the arm, how, how to use it? So um, when a kid gets an arm, what technology is used when, you know, the kid has to accomplish a task with that arm or, you know, how, 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 do the kid, how does the kid actually learn how to use this bionic arm? That's a great question. Uh, we use EMG electromyography for the child to be able to open and close the hand. Uh, in the beginning, they're only able to open and close, but with uh, training from our video games, which is led by P Peter Smith, Dr. Peter Smith, uh, they can then you turn the arm into multi-gesture mode and be able to have uh, three other gestures as well. So um, pinch and uh, point are the other two gestures that are on there. Uh, grasp is the main one, so that's open and close itself, and then uh, pinch and point. So the pinch is able to be able to grab uh, objects more in more fine detail. And then uh, we just thought it would be uh, really cool for, as one of their other ones just to be able to point at things. Wow, that's really interesting. So what kind of AI are you using um, to customize uh, those different features? Great question. Uh, so currently we don't use any AI to actually customize the features. Um, but one of the things we uh, do is use a... Um, uh, recursive algorithm in order to turn 3D models into SVGs for them to be able to see the arm um, as a uh, nice picture on their uh, web, web portal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what type of technology tools like are you guys using, you know, for example, like TensorFlow? How do you use it? Oh, great question. So we use TensorFlow in our app in order for the parent uh, to be able to take uh, pictures of their uh, child's arm in a way that we could actually model it in order to generate a cuff for the child. Um, TensorFlow is able to uh, detect the, a uh, measurement tool on the image, and so that's how we are able to define the size of the individual's arm. So the app has a... Uh, image processing uh, portal that the parent will then put, uh, take a picture from above and, the, and make sure that the phone is flat. And when they take the image, it then checks the image to make sure that there is some type of measurement tool in there. And if there's not, it makes them retake the image. Okay, awesome. So what type of um, data do you guys collect when, um, you know, you're, using the technology to implement, like grabbing an object? 
Currently, right now, we don't use any um, uh, AI to uh, help grab an object. We uh, try to have the child learn how to do that on their own. So they have mm -hmm. like a visual feedback themselves. So they're able to see and be able to do from there. In the future, we actually do want to be able to implement or we have talked about implementing some type of AI inside of a camera in order to detect the object and change the fingers in order to pick up the object more efficiently. There's a lot of research going on in other research labs that are looking at um, um, different ways that AI can be used in, in prosthetics. And a lot, of AI, a lot of labs across the country look at um, how they can use AI for object detection, or how they can use AI for intelligent approaches of an arm to interface with the world around them. So um, there's a use case where a user for a prosthetic arm may um, want to pick up irregularly shaped objects and use kind of the same control schema uh, as they approach an object to grab that object regardless of what that object is. Um, and, and there's some, even some evidence that uh, that's, that's kind of how octopodes um, approach interacting with the world around them. So octopus have these, these really interesting like um, neural nets and, and, and neural clusters in their arms that uh, it, it, a lot of research appears to be pointing to the fact that even when an octopus has a barrier um, that prevents the octopus from seeing or, or understanding what an object is beyond that barrier, their arm is intelligently able to grasp that object. Um, and there's tons of research that's going into that, even for prosthetics. Um, and we've seen that with cameras and, and we've seen that with extra sensor input. Um, but currently, uh, for our arm and our aesthetic and the way that our arm works and processes information, um, we have not chosen to pursue that as something that we do. Um, but we have seen that there's opportunities to use AI um, for interfacing between the arm and the person. So rather than kind of using the AI to, to, to interface between the arm and the, the environment, um, we definitely have seen a couple of um, approaches that we can use, uh, you know, complex Computer, computer systems and complex decision-making processes, uh, which you know we know as artificial intelligence, to, to kind of facilitate the user interfacing with the prosthetic. One of those uh, areas, one of those avenues, as John has mentioned, was uh, using TensorFlow, using kind of um, an intelligent system to help us identify the presence of you know, our users' little arm, as a lot of our users like to call their um, vestigial limb, their, their nub. Um, and, and when we take these photos, which we will then use for, for photogrammetry or to model their arm for when we're making a socket or making a, a comfortable part of our prosthetic that the user will fit into, uh, we need those photos to be in pretty particular orientations, to be in the right distance, and to have some object in that photo that we know uh, a proper dimension off of, that we can derive dimensions off of later. So those, all of those things, um, TensorFlow is really good at being trained on identifying when those things are in the right, um, 
when they're in the field of view, when they're in the right orientation. And so the TensorFlow portion of our application really aids um, the, the parent and, and the, the users in that data capture experience. And once we've used that for the data capture, we can then um, populate our photogrammetry to create a, a fairly accurate model of our, of our end users um, limb so that we can then model their socket and that way it fits comfortably with their prosthetic arm. Uh, and then the other area that we're, we're exploring and we're developing and we're using artificial intelligence for is some of our training suite for the user to then be able to use the arm more effectively. So as John mentioned just a few minutes ago, um, right now uh, the user is given a prosthetic arm that has very minimal kind of basic functionality. John spoke to the fact that we use a technology that's called electromyography, EMG, that looks at the mus muscle's voltage, looks at the muscle's activity, and it can be any targeted muscle. So um, like I like to call the, the Goldilocks region, if, if a user is kind of missing, um, if a user is kind of missing just their fingers, uh, that's not really an, uh, an appropriate area that we can apply our technology. So just kind of finger replacement doesn't give us a lot of room to pack all of our motors and, and motor controllers and circuitry and, and batteries and, and sensors. So there, there's some minimal amount that has to be missing from a, a recipient in order for us to really effectively help them. And then there's also a limit as to how much can be missing as well. So um, if they're missing kind of mid bicep or above, mid bicep is, is, is known as transhumeral. So that bone is your humerus and transhumeral means that you're, you're missing in the middle of that, that humeral bone. And, um, and above that, when you're starting to miss shoulder if there's not really a lot to hold on to or grip onto for that, that upper arm region, um, it becomes more uncomfortable or there's a lot of complications that come from that. And then if you're missing shoulder, then there aren't really directed muscle groups that we can target that don't interfere. So that's what we refer to as that, that Goldilocks region. So really mid forearm to mid bicep is kind of that, that perfect region where we have enough room to pack all of our electronics and, and motors and arm, um, and there, there's still enough to really hold on to and integrate to. And then, like I said, we use EMG technology to measure the muscle voltage of any targeted muscle. So in the case that it's um, uh, transradial, in the case that it's mid forearm, we would target muscles that still existed in that forearm. And uh, if it's you know, transhumeral, we can target that bicep or maybe even tricep muscle, whatever's there. And very quickly, um, the kids start to learn uh, that when they flex that muscle, that's what controls the hand. And we want to create this, and we do create this relationship that the, the kids understand that when that muscle activates and when they move that muscle, the hand reacts. And anytime you kind of like um, change that relationship or um, uh, break those rules, the, the user really quickly learns that, um, that, 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 that piece is no longer a part of them. 
And so it's like when you play a video game or when you're typing on your keyboard, if you pressed the, the L key and your keyboard typed P, um, you might look down at the, the keyboard to make sure that your fingers are positioned correctly, or um, you might make sure that everything's in the right order, and then you go to type L again. If it, if it then types U, that relationship is broken, that trust is broken, and then you start to question what's wrong. And, and we want to remove that, like, what is wrong question from, from that relationship between our user and our device. And one of the ways that we do that is we use video games to uh, introduce different control paradigms. So as John mentioned, we have the, the grasp, pinch, point, um, and in the future, there can be more. Um, we are still in these introductory beginning stages, proof of concept with these uh, more complex uh, control paradigms. And we, we also know that there can be a lot of uh, human tax and human fatigue in exhaustively testing these different control paradigms. And so um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to have Peter talk a little bit about what we're doing with the video games and how we're avoiding that user exhaustion through some of those things that we're doing with the video games. Okay, so um, yeah, so we make video games to try to um, teach the kids how to use the arm. And uh, one of the things that we do we start out with uh um we have a couple different games we have one that is called uh, magical savior of friends or we've been calling it limitless adventure more recently which um might be a, a more on brand title but uh anyway in that game you're kind of a gnome and you're freeing um the frogs from a bunch of snakes and the game's designed around the idea that you're going to use kind of elemental powers to do that. So if you do a, um, a small flex, you'll shoot a small attack. And if you do a medium flex, you do kind of this like shotgun blast attack. And then if you do a large flex, you can shoot a lightning bolt like all the way across the screen. And um, as you learn how to um, do those flexes and play through the game, you play the whole game you are now able to hit those three levels that John mentioned and um, you level up in the game and then you also level up in the arm. And that's when we unlock the multi-gestural support in the arm. Uh, in the games, we like to do things like allow the kids to pick uh, different colors for the characters. So the gnomes can have blue hats and yellow hats and things like that. Um, in some of our other games, you can actually pick the character that you are and change them out and um <clears throat> we want to be able to like create that context for them so when we talk to them and say hey do the the little attack and that's what's going to make your hand like open and close and do the the large attack and that's going to point and um do that medium attack and that'll do that pinch motion and uh, it gives us a way to like actually communicate with the the participant um it's it's pretty interesting way to teach them how to do it i think that a lot of times with prosthetics they'll take uh um like someone who is uh like has an amputation they might take them and say do the thing you used to do to point and then they will point and you can kind of read that and make that the input that you would get to um to do point in the arm 
in the, the limitless uh, population, most of them are born without some portion of their arm. And so they don't have that context to start from. So the games help provide that. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for that. So what type of data, um, back to um, the gestures, what type of data is being collected and how is it being used? Yeah. So um, to start with, we have to do a calibration process where, um, you know, we, we ask the, the player to kind of like not flex their muscle for a while. We read that and see if there's any kind of noise coming in on the line. And so we set anything that's showing up when they're at rest, anything below that will just not show up. We set the low calibration above that. Then we ask them to flex and wherever that goes, we put that as like the high um, side of the calibration. And then the game is played in that the percentage of, um, flex that they can do. So they, we end up with like an analog signal between 0% and 100%. And so they can then flex at 5% or 50% or 75%. And that can be different inputs. Um, the ability to kind of control that right now, I, I would be um, weary of doing more than maybe like five gestures. And we're currently going at three. So, um, <clears throat> but we could do combinations too, where it's like a little and a big combining or something like that but um that's how we read in the information that kind of between zero and 100 percent flex and it'll be different for each person okay are you guys using um ml agent machine learning agents at all well in the in the game on the game side of things we did um some experiments with the unity ml agents so all our games are made using uh, Unity, which is a, a game engine, and they have a product that is uh, allows you to run an ML agent in the in their game. So we we built an agent that could run. Uh, we have a game called Limitless Runner, and that one is an endless runner, and uh, the kids can play that for as long as they want. And then there's some challenge modes where they jump through hoops, like there's literally like hoops on the track, and they try to jump small, medium, and large, and a flex. A small flex would jump through like a low hoop and a large flex would jump through a high hoop, right? So they're able to kind of run down this track and jump through the hoops. The ML agent, what we thought would happen is we'd be able to have the ML agent run and tell us how much the person should flex to get through each hoop perfectly. And then say like, this is the flex percentages for each jump um, and where they should be. And if they're not quite there, then we'll figure out how to get them there. But um, what we found is that the ML agent would do some things like jump really high early so it could land down through multiple hoops and things like that, um, which was really interesting to see happen, but not really the way we wanted the kids to play the level. So um, what we really learned from that, that was what constitutes kind of a bad level. We'd be able to watch the agent run through and say, oh, it's not doing what we want, really. So that's probably not... <laughs> A good level to give to the kids and so we would then change it and maybe like add some spacing between the hoops and things like that all right awesome so what what data are you looking at and how is it getting processed yeah so um like we we said a little bit earlier um we use a sensor that's called electromyography emg and that looks realistically that that's, that's taking in um micro voltages from the muscle and then we amplify that signal 
And through that amplification, anything else that's going on along that signal is also amplified. So on the sensor side, on that board, we then do some bandpass filtering. And even early on, we had talked about when we started to use ML agents or when we started to explore using AI within the, the training aspect and within the arm, we, we considered kind of using AI on that gross data. And, and we had a discussion about how much of that data did we want to parse through. Um, and then what we decided ultimately was that when we wanted to use that, um, when we wanted to kind of validate the approach or the use of AI to kind of model a user or to, to model anything, we wanted it to give us back the most, or we wanted to give that model the best chance at succeeding as possible. And so we knew that our data um, and was, was a lot when it's raw. And we know from uh, scientific literature and we know from, from our body of understanding that the, the muscle itself kind of uh, flexes or the signal for the muscle is kind of within a um, frequency range. And so what we do is we kind of bandpass filter all of that data and then um, we also rectify that, that signal so that it's always kind of a positive integer. It doesn't really make much difference, but for humans to understand it as a pos positive integer, it, it, it helps. And um, yeah, and then that's all sensor side. And so as Peter said, that signal comes through kind of as, as, as an analog signal um, from, from kind of zero to a reference voltage. So for, for us, that, that could be arbitrarily 3.5 volts. So um, then we read that voltage that's been amplified and then filtered um, and rectified. So we would, we would see a number anywhere between zero and 3.5. Then, as Peter said in the video game, um, from that number anywhere between zero and 3.5, you know, the noise level may be at, you know, 12, 12.72 something. Um, and so we can, we can kind of set that minimum threshold that any, any number in that noise level, while I may say is at 12.2 or whatever, it's going to bounce. It's going to be um, 8.9, 12 uh, 7.06. It's going to be jumping kind of anywhere. And, and there's a lot of reason for that. The sensor wires can um, uh, act as antenna. There's uh, tons of reason that um, there's some minimal noise, right? Um, and, and, and some of it's even unknown, but th there's this minimal noise. And so we, we um, increase that minimum threshold that we look at to anything above that. So any significant intentionality, any significant um, muscle movement and then we start looking at it above that noise level to that maximum um, effort level that we can then calibrate off of us uh, off of a recipient or a user um, and then look at any of the data between those two thresholds so we talked a little bit about um and dominique thank you for that so much uh what 
we're talking about the importance of agency in design considerations. So, you know, consistency. So how does that play into, um, you know, when you're taking into consideration how to build the arm? Yeah, so this, um, that's a great question. Um, a lot of times we focus a lot on the technical side. A lot of times we, we focus on the technical challenges of how to make a finger move or um, in the case of, of that signal processing, when we should make a, a finger move. Um, but as you said, some of that, that um, uh, personal agency giving them um, not only the agency over what their device looks like, giving them the agency over um, kind of uh, what colors to choose, having them participate in some of that design um, makes them feel that once they've received the arm, it's already a part of them. There's already a relationship there. And a, a, a lot of what we do is, is try to foster that relationship between a user and their arm. Um, and uh, kind of to, to speak back to that um, octopus relationship, um, that octopus's arm is a part of that octopus. So they're used to that relationship. So for us, when we give a child an arm, if we want to develop this relationship that the arm is always doing what the user is expecting. And that uh, if the child or the user decides that they want to do a thing, that the arm will do that thing. Uh, and so for us, kind of by looking at those predictive models and allowing the hand to, to adapt in a way that the child is not expecting, we viewed it as almost taking away some of that agency. Um, if, if a child wants to be clever and, and kind of pick something up with an OK symbol, or if the child wants to, um, I don't know, um, tickle their sister with a pinch, right? <laughs> um, we wanted to give them that agency and not have it be reliant on uh, an artificial model creating an artificial decision, right? Um, so that's something that, that we created that's something that we've held dear to, to kind of what we want to do and um we we believe that it's the right uh direction forward oh wow that's really cool so um uh you know i i was thinking about so where is this going in in like the future you talked about how now there's three gestures right but what about um like where do you see the future of ai and, and bionics going do you see arms uh, like children being able to teach their arms a series of their own gestures, for example? So uh, we actually talked about that uh, several times uh, prior. And in our old app, there was a way that you could add different types of gestures to the hand. We got mm -hmm. rid of that currently, but probably we'll go back in the future and put that in. Um, and it was, you could go through a, uh, a list of gestures uh, uh, fingers and you could pick which finger you wanted to be in uh, that uh, to do this thing while you did this gesture and uh, it would do that. Um, we probably will unleash that uh, feature in the adult side. Uh, I think we're still going to be cautious on the child side of doing that much uh, uh, integration. So how do you see the future 
of bionics evolving? Well, I think that there's a short term and a, a long term. I think that um, uh, fortunately, at long term, I, I hope that we don't have a, a business. I, I hope that long term advances in um, uh, biology and, and being able to, to regrow limbs or being able to, to graft um, these lab grown limbs will kind of put us in, in the way of the dinosaur. I, I hope that eventually um, humans will, will um, using technology, will, will go beyond the need for having um, our devices. Now, that being said, um, will technology on the, the mechatronic side grow to the point that while you may not need a mechatronic arm you may want or desire a mechatronic arm that's possible um there, that exists um i think that as technology improves as we uh solve some of the problems um of of that control paradigm as, as we solve some of the issues of understanding human intentionality and desire on that kind of neurophysical neurochemical level um uh I think that, yeah, we can have perfect integration of mechatronic arms or mechatronic uh, prostheses on, on the human. Um, and, and then, you know, science fiction is, is the limit, right? We've, we've looked towards science fiction, towards science fiction as that inspiration. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, I think near term, near term technology uh, I, I think that uh, always creating a device that's lighter, faster, stronger, longer lasting, I, I think those incremental improvements there will uh, um, make major dividends on, on, the, on the other side. So um, yeah, I think the lighter the device is, the more people you can give it to, the longer they can wear it without fatigue or discomfort. Um, the longer the battery lasts, the less uh, frustrating or embarrassing moments people run into when their their battery is drained, um, metaphorically as well as physically. And then, um, yeah, stronger. No one likes to have fingers broken, whether that's uh, a prosthetic arm that doesn't give you a pain feedback loop or whether it's a, a biological arm that does. Um, having a broken finger is, is a disappointment and is, is troublesome. So um, having them stronger, more resilient, faster, and yeah, um, the, the, the more that we can leverage technology to minimize the pinch points of use, uh, I think the, the more a person can rely on that device and, and be more comfortably integrated into that device. That's a lot to think about. Okay, so if you could solve any problem in the world, what would it be? Yeah, so it, I, I've been thinking about this since, um, you know, uh, brought up in a conversation earlier. And uh, um, I was really like, I want to be more profound and be like, we should solve like world hunger and all of that. But uh, I really just want better um, AI in my video games so that I have a better time playing which is not great.
Like, what would you want to actually see it do? What experiences would you change? Yeah, so I, I think just for more uh, richer and interesting narratives and uh, the ability to have like AIs that you can actually interact with and have experiences and relationships with versus just learn the rules of how this AI character is going to behave and then just try to figure out how to beat it. Okay. So would you have AI building its own narrative right now? Yeah, or be able to participate in the narrative in a way that is um, like more realistic, right? So you could just give, maybe have an AI where you could give it its uh, motivations and its uh, like topic and background information, and then it would be able to generate what it felt like talking about. That's really interesting. So do you think, what type of data do you think we'd have to have access to, to actually be able to carry that out? Um, do you think on the user side, maybe the we'd have to collect information about the user to teach the program like, hey, this user needs this level of um, complexity? Yeah, I think you, you would need to be able to do that. You'd also have to have an AI that really understood how conversations go and like what um, are relevant topics and how to actually like string together a sentence maybe more coherently than I'm doing right now even, right? I don't know, Peter. It kind of sounds like an AI is taking over a little bit. I, should I be scared? <laughs> is this Peter Smith I'm talking to right now? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it would be, um, it would make video games more fun, but it could also be applied to things like Alexa or uh, other, like, AIs that we have to interact with on a regular mm -hmm. basis. Like, imagine Alexa could say, like, I know you're asking for this, but I can feel tension in your voice or something. Do you want this or that solution? Do you need help even? That would actually be a very interesting problem to solve because they have like sentiment analysis right now, right? So if you could teach Alexa to recognize tension as stress and then offer like a candle, um, you know, based on previous purchase history or like uh, maybe, I don't know, some people like cake when they're stressed. That would be very interesting relationship to flesh out the different responses to stress that people have. It'd be interesting if you had a bad day at work and then Alexa just had a cake delivered to your home. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I have a puppy. Like I, I would love a rent a puppy service on a day that I'm like stressed. Just send me a puppy to play with for an hour. Like I'll be so happy afterwards. Okay, John, your turn. So if you could solve any problem in the world, what would it be and how? Do I get future technology or do I have to work with what we have at hand? You can invent anything you want. I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, Dominique's uh, interesting point earlier in this podcast that I would really like to just get rid of prosthetics and having to rely on uh, humans as organ donors and have a uh, AI that would be able to take in, uh, let's say, someone's blood cells or something else and just print a 
the completed arm or completed organ that the person had need. Can I change my answer or? <laughs> but I really like your Alexa just giving me kale chips instead of Doritos. I know you were stressed, John, but uh, you really need to go with the kale today. <laughs> I would not want to hear Alexa tell me that. I'm so afraid that, like, with these AI, like, I don't know, uh, assistants, especially when it's like, I want an AI that will make me happy. I'm so afraid that the AI will determine that, like, with increased suffering, you will appreciate the lack of suffering more. So you are actually going to have to, like, exercise 20 hours a day and eat salad and I, I it's it, it's actually gonna make you miserable and then like after that be like but aren't you happier now and that's what i'm afraid of right it's like i don't know I, i'm afraid that what the machine views or learns makes a person happy isn't happiness well i think everyone defines happiness differently right so for me personally you know, my soul feels like it's elated and thriving when I engage in activities that increase my sense of expansiveness, freedom, or harmony. And uh, salad and 20 hours of exercise a day, to me, sounds like so much fun. Um, I would love to not make that salad. <laughs> But I would love to spend 20 hours a day, you know, like hiking or surfing or, you know, being outside and, and moving my body. And then like something is bringing me a salad every three hours as I'm burning the calories. Like that sounds like heaven to me. That's great. And then what happens when it turns out that your neighbor's Alexa is bringing them a puppy and you didn't get the puppy. You had to go on that eight hour hike. Then I can go get myself a puppy. No, okay. See, then I would hate Alexa. I'd be like so mad. What? Yeah, no, I couldn't. I don't know. I don't know. This is complicated. Because you were mad, Dominique, it gave you the puppy the next time. Maybe we could just like instruct the AI to bring me a puppy. Why does it have to figure it out? Like maybe I can just make it easy. Like Alexa, a puppy would make me happy. Next time I'm stressed, bring me a puppy. I'm sorry, puppy deliveries are not in your area. <laughs> so, Dominique, if you could solve any problem in the whole wide world with AI or any type of technology, what would it be? I think that uh, I think that the biggest problem uh, humans have as a species is a lack of self-understanding. So if we could somehow create tools that allow people to understand their own motivations, to understand, um, so even in this example that we just discussed, I think the biggest problem that we were talking about is the fact that we may not always know what makes us happy. Um, and so if we were, or even if you we were able to order what would make us happy from Alexa and it cost us nothing and there was no inflation, I think we would quickly find that that, that piece that we thought was missing wasn't the piece that would make us full. 
And so I think that if we could solve that problem, knowing what makes us fulfilled, knowing what makes us complete and being able to kind of realize that or actualize that, uh, I think that would be the greatest achievement in society. So what do you think we would need to build or data that we would have to collect to be able to get there? I I would actually also say that I think it would be the most detrimental technology. I think that it is, it it is, it is need that, what do we say? Need is the mother of invention. It it, it is the, the desire for other things. It is discontentment that causes us to create better things. And if we were somehow able to short circuit that and just make ourselves content, we wouldn't improve. We wouldn't do better. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, what, what, what would we need? I, I think honestly, the quickest way is just to like figure out, uh, oh, it's actually like neuroepinephrine, 40%, 20% serotonin and, uh, top it off with a bit of dopamine and just direct inject into your brain. And there you go. You're good, dude. Uh, I think that's the, the probably the quickest way, but I think on Dominique, the, that's called exercise. Oh, I don't know. Sure, maybe. But <laughs> uh, I, I think that um, yeah. Well, I I'm not sure what data we would need to like understand what makes a person truly self-realized. I know that there are tons of philosophies. I know that there's the eightfold path and there's religion and there's, there's tons of, we have millennia of philosophizers who think that they know. Um, but I'm not really sure. That's a, that's a question for somebody else to figure out. Yeah. I think that's a, a very interesting notion. Um, you know, like what if we had an AI who could gather definitions of happiness across all the cultures, across all the world, synthesize them and then measure, you know, each human being. Because I can imagine every human being would have a lot of differences, right? Um, And then personalize a regimen to increase whatever it is that person needs. Like for me personally, I like to feel safe. You know, that's part of harmony for me. So what are the things that make me feel safe? What are the things that can make a person feel safe? Um, and there's individual differences in those things, but I, I feel like they are measurable. We just haven't brought the data together yet. Everything that we need to solve that problem probably already exists. We just haven't married it together elegantly and presented it in a digestible format. And happiness changes throughout our 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 lives as our bodies change as we experience new things um it would be interesting to know you know when we experience something how does our experience of that change our interpretation of what makes us happy and then when we experience a new set of things a different number of times each how does that change our happiness as well you know, um, I was very happy for a very long time thinking I lived in heaven in a specific area. And then I went to go travel like Pacific Islands where it's like tropical 
all the time with Azure Water and there's always perfect waves. And then I'm like, no, this 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 would make me happy if I lived here. <laughs> so that was that's a very interesting experience. Um, you know how, how we also interact with our environment. Um, so we're gonna get our uh, our digital twin and put it in the metaverse and make it happy and then then go do whatever we did to make it happen. <laughs> it tests multiple realities. So basically the premise for a neural network is it, it tests po all possible combinations of things. So if you have a sufficient amount of uh, clones in the metaverse, all testing possible realities, um, <laughs> how long would it take to figure out what would make that simulated clone most optimally happy. Yeah, we're going to have to put a spoiler warning for the new Doctor Strange movie on this uh, podcast. <laughs> oh, well, thank you guys so much for joining me today. You know, I really enjoyed hearing about all the wonderful things you're doing at Limbalist Solutions. And, um, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen the awesome video of Limbalit Solutions providing an Iron Man arm by uh, Robert Downey Jr. to a kid. It's on YouTube. Please go check it out. It's really cool. Um, you know, and thank you guys so much today for talking about how you help people, how you build the technology, how you broke down the problem and implemented the solution. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for having us on.